I think this issue has reached a pretty high level of public awareness as well as policymaker awareness. So now the question is, we've got their attention. What is it we want them to do? Right, That's still the missing piece I think we as a community need to work on more. My name is Brian Whedon. I'm the Director of Program Planning for the Secure World Foundation, a U.S.-based nonprofit focused on the long-term sustainability of space for benefits here on Earth. Hey, Space Watchers. This is Space Cafe Radio on tour in Lausanne. Your channel about trends, great people and awesome conferences. I'm Thorsten, publisher of Spacewatch.global. This episode marks the end of our mini-series of nine interviews on tour in Lausanne at the Leo Kinetic Space Safety Workshop at the EPFL's eSpace Center, recorded beginning of May 2022. I did had the truly honor to speak with people that have an impact on our industry as their words matter such as Jim Bridenstine, Charlotte Bewig, Christine Iacomini, Walt Everett, Srinivas City, Valentin Eder, Frank Schäfer, Tim Flora, and now Brian Whedon. Enjoy the final episode. We're here in Lausanne at the Kinetic Space Safety Workshop, and you're one of the sponsors of this workshop. So why that? Why space debris? How does that fit into the policy One of the big space sustainability concerns for us are collisions on orbit that can create lots of debris and threaten the ability to use space as well as our current satellites to provide lots of benefits and lots of services that we use here on Earth. We were very interested to sponsor this workshop to help bring together the technical community that is working on space debris and mitigation and working on avoiding collisions and all the other aspects And really try and get them to come to some sort of consensus on what the top problems are and what the top solutions are to resolve some of those challenges. We have a lot of conversations and do a lot of work with policymakers in the U.S., other countries, at the U.N., and we are looking for sort of a consensus set of recommendations from the technical scientific community that we can bring to those policymakers to help then shape what they're talking about and, and what policies and agreements they're trying to get done. So that was our core interest in this workshop and why we felt it was important to do. Did you get your answers for this question? Because you raised this question yesterday also to John Bridenstine, and I think it was an interesting answer, but did it satisfy you how to work with policymakers? When I asked the question to Jim, I sort of knew the, the answer a bit myself because we work with U.S. Congress and other policymaking entities all the time. But I still wanted to get his thoughts on it and sort of, you know, expose it to the audience. And, and partly the point he made about how your typical policymaker is dealing with many, many issues at one time. Space is one of those. And it can be very difficult just to get five minutes of their time. And so you have to be very succinct. You have to know what you're going after. You have to be able to give them a, here's what I'm asking for, right? So it's not just convincing there's a problem. They're then going to ask, okay, what do you want me to do, right? And you have to have that answer ready to go. If your answer is, well, I don't know, I'll get back to you, you've lost them, right? Will that work in Europe as well or in other parts of the world outside the U.S.? I, I think it's applicable to policymakers everywhere, right? There's lots of stuff going on in the world. <laughs> you know, we've got situation in Ukraine, we've got climate change, 
We've got the fall of the ongoing pandemic, the fallout from the global shipping and transportation and all that stuff impacting the economy. There's lots of big issues that everyone's trying to struggle with. So I think it's applicable anywhere you're going to look. How do you, A, convince them it's a problem, and then B, once you have their attention, get them an idea for how to make a positive change that they can implement, right? And and we can actually make some progress towards solving some of these challenges. Why did you choose Lausanne for this workshop? A number of the attendees, speakers are American. So there's a huge crowd from America coming over, I would say at least 50%, if not even more. So, but why then Switzerland? Why not staying home? Well, A, I think it's important to recognize that this is an international problem. Second, there was a lot of interest and support from Switzerland, from EPFL and hosting this event. For anyone that's organized an event, that makes a huge amount of difference when you have a local entity and a local institution that is committed and willing to put up resources and help organize it. So for me, uh, that was a big part of it. And of course, Lausanne's a beautiful place. No doubt. And I, I think that the organizers have done an absolute great job in, in organizing that and putting it together here. It's very seamless. It's very Swiss. Let's, <laughs> let's face it. I'm a fan of Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> Coming back to the topic of the, of the workshop, is SSA is getting space to breathe enough awareness outside our bubble? I think it generally has reached general awareness. So I, talked about yesterday, the movie Gravity played a big role in that and sort of building that that public awareness. I get pings from friends and family who see a new story on space debris. They recognize it and they ping me about it. Even I've heard people on the street or elsewhere talking about this a little bit. So I think this issue has reached a, a pretty high level of public awareness as well as policymaker awareness. So now the question is, we've got their attention. What is it we want them to do? All right, that's still the missing piece. I think we as a community need to work on more. So it doesn't put it our work, your work into a shadow if Clooney, Bullock getting more awareness for a serious topic than we do, than the scientists do. It's the same problem that we see with the climate change that's ignored for decades. And now suddenly it happens, but it did not happen suddenly. And we did just didn't listen to the scientists. Yeah, it's a tough one. I've had lots of debates and discussions with people in our community about whether a movie like Gravity, Gravity was a good thing or a bad thing, right? Because while it did raise a huge amount of awareness, it also promulgated some incorrect understandings and situation. But I've come to realize that you can only do so much from a, a scientific, very technical point of view to, to advocate for it. You kind of do need that, you know a little bit looser interpretation of things. And from what I've seen, the movie generated awareness that then led people to ask more questions. And that, I think, is where the technical community, the scientific community, those of us that work on this, can then step in, right? Maybe we're not the best to generate that awareness and the concern, but we are placed to then, once that concern awareness is there, to then join the conversation and say, okay, Great to hear you're interested in this. Here's what's going on, and here's what we can do about it. Gravity, if I remember right, at least had a positive end, or <laughs> ended on a positive <laughs> side that she returned safely to Earth. But others like, don't look up. 
that not ended that positive. It got a big impact with all the efforts we, we did. So coming back to SSA or the space debris issue, is it manageable? Is it a manageable risk for us? I'm still positive that we can solve the issue. For one, we're still talking about, you know, robots in space and there's not a direct, well, there's not a direct risk of loss of human life if we don't get space debris right. It's certainly going to make things on Earth more challenging, may lead indirectly to loss of life if we can't predict uh, major storms and some other things. But it's not like climate change or nuclear war where getting it wrong means hundreds of millions of people are going to die kind of directly. So we do have that. And also, we do have a bit of time. It's not as pressing that all we still have time to address things and correct things on the space debris side. I think that's one of the big public misunderstandings. Something like the Kessler syndrome, for example, is something that can be triggered by one event. And then in minutes or hours, everything in space is gone. That's just not the way it's going to happen. It is something that is happening over decades and is going to lead to some very bad things in the future. But we still have time to address it. Bridenstine talked about putting more satellites up. We are putting more fuel into this potential event that can happen. But what is the solution? Today, we do have less than a handful of companies that actively doing active debris removal attempts, AstroScale, namely, or here in Switzerland, clear space. So AstroScale has said one demo mission with a sort of success, not full successful as far as I heard, or clear space is, is not there yet. But in the same time, month by month, we are launching hundreds of satellites. So that looks like a very unbalanced equation. How can we solve that? How can we stabilize it? Stopping all space launches is not an option, I, I assume. But where is this equilibrium where we can hold or pause for a moment? First, I'll say we are seeing some amazing benefits coming from all these new satellites, right? Just look at Starlink and just Ukraine, the impact they've had on that, both in providing connectivity to the public in Ukraine, who had infrastructure destroyed as part of the Russian invasion, but also the national security benefits that Ukraine has had through that, through the ability to use that constellation. That is game changing. So there are lots of positive benefits from these new constellations, from ability to use space and putting up new satellites. So you're right, stopping all that is not the answer. Part of it, though, is on those companies to look beyond just moving as fast as possible and doing what they can to do so sustainably. Now, I think that we've seen some good evidence they're trying because they have an interest Right. If they screw things up, there goes their business model. So they have a vested interest in not screwing it up. And to SpaceX's credit and Starlink's credit, they've put up more than 2,000 satellites, have yet to have a collision. They've done a very good job of managing things, of building relationships with their operators. Now, the question is, how does that scale in the future as other operators start to come online? Right. So honestly, I think ultimately, I, I, I look to the governments for a lot of this. Because realize these commercial companies can't do anything without a license from the governments. And there's multiple governments involved because everywhere they offer service, they need to have a license from that country. So there's many countries that have the opportunity to play a role in ensuring this is being done responsibly. Can you give us more context? Because I'm not 
understanding how these landing rights you're talking yep. in the countries reflects to the behavior of the satellite constellation. When a company puts up its constellation, there is sort of, I'll call it a, a primary responsibility is to the launching state, the country from which they're launching from or the, that does the launches or that, that procured the launches. So, for example, we're starting like that's the United States. And they're primarily responsible for licensing the operations of that constellation and ensuring they're complying with international law, the Outer Space Treaty, as well as domestic requirements. But then when Starlink or the constellation goes off and wants to offer services in Germany and Switzerland in name your country, that country also has to issue a license to that. And that gives them a mechanism not only to ensure that they're complying with sort of the, the radio frequency spectrum access requirements, but other things as well. For example, countries may have different national laws about content that is carried over that service or how citizens in that country can access that service. And that's how they use that as national license. It is possible through this landing rights to also say if the launching state is not doing their job and ensuring you are meeting international requirements for debris mitigation for other things, we will do so through the landing rights. For example, the United States has done that for at least one Canadian constellation where in the license for providing services in the U.S. it says If Canada doesn't meet its requirements, or we don't think Canada is meeting their requirements, we will we reserve the right to impose those. So there is an opportunity to do that. Now, not all countries are doing that. And part of it, I think, is they may be just trusting that the U.S. or the U.K. have thought about all these things. I'm not sure that's always the case. So part of this is having more of a dialogue between the different national regulators so they know what each other's working on, they talk about their concerns, and they have more of an idea uh, of what the potential challenges are. The other thing that is somewhat concerning to me is I've seen more and more countries talking about these large constellations in the context of national sovereignty, in that countries are saying, we need to have our own constellation We can't just use the, the service provided by OneWeb or Starlink or Kuiper or whoever else. And, and I think that is leading to a situation where we might have multiple constellations more than what may be economically viable for the purpose of national sovereignty. As you say, national sovereignty, and I'm absolutely with you on that, when it is provided by a private company, many countries still have an issue with that, even put their data on a private company's server. How can that be solved? The other topic I see when we have strong countries that have an option to use a service or not, then there is a choice. And they might be even have the capacities to judge this kind of service on the metrics you just brought up. If you have countries that does not have the chance, that just want to have internet service, they go for what they can get. Am I Role yeah. with this assumption? No, it's a really tough question. I certainly don't have any answer to that. In some ways, this is the large satellite broadband constellation sector is developing sort of like the satellite navigation systems constellation where you have, or sector where you have 
you know, theoretically everyone could use GPS, but instead we have GPS, we have GLONASS, we have Galileo, we have Beidou, we have QZSS, we have IRNSS, and the South Koreans just announced something, and the UK is talking about their own thing. Some of those are independent, some of those augment other navigation services, but that is because those countries I, I mentioned all consider having satellite navigation to be a critical sovereign capability and that they feel it's important to invest in that. And I see a very similar dynamic happening in satellite broadband. Now, of course, the other part of this is I don't think there's any single constellation that would have the capacity to provide broadband services to the entire world. So we probably do need to have multiple ones serving multiple segments, providing additional capacity. And of course, having some competition is good to help keep prices down. But, you know, part of me thinks maybe there's something like a natural monopoly sort of a thing here with like power lines and, and sewage stations, right? Where it doesn't make sense to offer multiple sewer systems in a city, but also artificially restricting who can do it runs into all sorts of other problems. Back to where we sort of originally started this, I don't think this is a situation where we can stop and have all the answers before it happens. We're going to have to, unfortunately, figure it out as we go along and manage it as best we can, because we honestly don't know what the challenges are really going to be. One last question. One of the challenges operators have is communication. That sounds so trivial. Not lifting the phone, not talking to each other to solve a potential collision. Is it just naive to think or what is the, what is the meaning behind? How many of humanity's problems are created by lack of communication or inability to communicate? But there's actually a few layers that make it a little more complex. First, you have to know who to communicate with. And that's been a problem for many years now. It's getting better, but just knowing who to send the email to or who the phone number to call is can be difficult for all the various you know, thousands of satellites. Um, that are on orbit. But the second aspect is while we think that's sort of the best way to do it, they're going to just talk through it, that doesn't scale, right? That may work okay when you're talking about one or two close approaches a week. But when you're talking about hundreds and thousands of close approaches a week, talking on the phone just doesn't scale. So at some point, we're going to have to do a better job of automating this and making that machine to machine interface better at, at doing the routine aspects of this and then saving the humans time for the ones that they really need to focus on and they really need to sort through. That's the real challenge is coming up with that automated machine to machine thing. Because for right now, every operator does it differently. Mm -hmm. Every operator has their own process for identifying close approaches, deciding which ones they take an action on, and what that actual avoidance maneuver action is. Some like to move very early, some like to wait to the last minute. There's a lot of differences there. And, and also, they have different levels of risk, right? Some are willing to take a little more risk because it's not that big of an impact on their mission. Others are very risk averse. Maybe they only have one or two satellites, and so they can't risk losing them. And so that is all what's making it difficult to automate this. Uh, it should be solvable. 
in the foreseeable future. That's where a lot of the efforts are going right now is into solving this. And the other piece of the course is the data. So there's a lot of uncertainty still in the data that is driving probably more close approach warnings than we really need to be doing. And so working on eliminating or reducing that uncertainty so that we're really focusing on the close approaches we need to focus on is really important. Thank you very much for your Thank time, you. Brian. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Space Cafe Radio on tour in Lausanne at the LEO Kinetic Space Safety Workshop at EPFL in cooperation with AXA XL, LEO Labs, ClearSpace, Secure World Foundation and the EPFL eSpace Center. If you want to stay on the pulse of space, visit our website, our mothership at spacewatch.global and subscribe to our newsletters. But of course, don't forget to become a Space Watcher. I'm Tor Screening, CEO and publisher of SpaceWatch.Global, your independent perspective of space. Music